So it is great to be back with you all on this Tuesday. Um, real quick, one announcement before I forget is that we are um, in the closing days of trying to collect all these surveys. And so I noticed up in the narthex as I came through that there was a little pile of cards there like these that have the QR code on them. And you could pick one up on your way back to your automobile after class if you ever participated. But we really need a good turnout on the survey. Without a good turnout, there's not much reason. Not, without a good response, there's not much reason to do it. So we really need a good response, and, and I really need to ask all, all of y'all to participate. So just grab one of these cards, do the QR code. It'll take you 15 or 20 minutes probably to do the survey, and you can give the church staff all the feedback you would like. Okay, but principally really about the church and its workings and worship and the programs and everything else here. It's really not so much about the larger world out there as it is about trying to help us formulate and put together good worship services and good programs and the rest. So anyway, I know this can... Yes, you can do that. Yes, the bulletins, I guess. I found out in the last day or so that the bulletins are a hot topic. So I, I don't really know any more than you do about that. Okay, so the offering plates are coming back. That'll be good. We'll slowly get this place put back together, right, Andy? Yeah, yeah, so, okay. All righty, so don't really have anything else in the way of announcements. Patty and I will be here for a while yet. We don't, we're not going anywhere until August. Um, this is the Tuesday class, so we do meet, just in case you're curious, we are meeting on July 5th. You know, the, the church office will be closed the 4th of July, which is a Monday, but, but we'll be here on Tuesday, um, and that'll be great. So, any other announcements, Patty? No, I just told Susan you didn't run that by me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't run that by you. No, I didn't. No, it's okay. All right. <laughs> okay, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. Um, and we, as we do every week when we gather, we just, we just pray that your Holy Spirit, who does move among us and has called us here, would open our hearts and our minds to, to this letter from Paul. There are parts of it that are very difficult. They're very challenging. He talks in ways that we're not really very used to hearing in church, um, but perhaps, probably, surely, we need to hear, need to be ready to hear. So we ask your blessings on our gathering today. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I think we're live. I think everything's working. Why do I knock on wood? That's so ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> It works, that's why. Yes, I just blew up the podcast recording with that. Okay, so yeah. Okay, friends, so we are in this, we are in the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we are closing in, we are in the fourth chapter. 
And we are closing in on the end of this long introduction. You know, it, there's a lot of things packed into chapters one to four, but you can sort of see him as this introduction that precedes when he begins to work through all the individual problems. And they do have many of them, okay? And so he's got topic after topic that he wants, they want, <laughs> somebody's asked him about, or somebody's reported, it could be people in the community, community, it could be others who have been there to visit, who are reporting back to Paul and, and um, he's probably got some written correspondence from Corinthian Christians. And so all of that we are about to get into, but first we have to finish up chapter four and then at the beginning of chapter five, we have the first big problem that he has to deal with. Okay, so. What I'd like to do is maybe start at chapter 4, verse 10, just to go back to last week a little bit and read our way to where we actually need to start today, which is verse 14. So in the paragraph preceding verse 14, Paul is very, hmm, what is he? He is very direct kind of a mocking tone, right? Which, you know, sometimes turns people off. But he cares very, very much. And he's very, very worried about them. And he's trying to break through to them. You know, some people just don't want to hear very well. And so, I've had times in my life when somebody's taken a proverbial two-by-four upside my head to try to get me to, to listen and hear them well and not hear the words but lay all my own meaning on top of it, which is kind of what's happening here because Paul talks to them about the power of Christ and the rest of it, and they immediately hear it in terms of their Greco-Roman world, their Greek world in particular, a world filled with the power of rhetoric and the smarts and the great philosophers and the rest of it. Okay, so in verse 10, in his somehow somewhat mocking way, he says, we, this is Paul, we are fools for Christ, but you, you are so wise in Christ. And he's being sarcastic because they're not wise in Christ. They think they are, right? They think they are, but they're wrong. Sometimes you need people to tell you you're wrong. We are weak, but you, you are strong. You, you are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we, this is Paul, the apostle, and those like him, go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Gosh, what good, what... That is a Christ-like way to live. That is the life to which Jesus has called us. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We don't answer in kind. 
and lets the things escalate on up into who knows what. It's a different, it, it's, it's a very different way of living from the ways that the world tends to value. Paul says, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. There's no, in the world's eyes, there's no honor in being Christian. You know, there, there are not many of them, and they are ridiculed and they are persecuted. Um, if a, imagine it's a Greco-Roman family and they're sitting around the dinner table and one of the teenage children pops up and tells mom and dad that they're going to become, that they've become a, a follower of Jesus. They're going to start being part of this community, this house church. The parents would be stunned. They might be inclined to shun their child. The Christians were not seen as upholders of family values, they were seen as destroyers of family values. Because the Christian message coming straight out of Jesus' mouth is that you are to be loyal to Jesus before you are loyal to anyone else. Jesus comes first. Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? He says. So it, it was difficult on these early Christians and um, here in Corinth, I think Paul has Christians who haven't embraced really this, this rebirth that they have endured. And I haven't been willing to, to, to tolerate um, the, um, the ridicule of the world. So he says, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this minute. And then he says, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Why would he want to shame them? Why? I mean, it's not, it's not for the sake of shaming, ridicule, or anything else. He is simply warning them. Because for Paul, there is nothing on, nothing in God's creation that is more important than the good news. Nothing. It's the equivalent of the cure for cancer, however you want to think about it, whatever metaphor you would want to use. It is a matter of life and death. Eternal life and eternal death. And then he says to them in verse 15, he says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, um, you do not have many fathers. What? I said, is that true today? It, fathers in Christ, yes. And now he's speaking particularly, as you'll see, about himself. He says, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. This is the father, this is the pastoral father. This is the father in Christ. This is why priests in the Catholic Church are called father. Father old Brennan, you know, down from Sister... Mary Margaret of the Weeping Willows Church or whatever it might be, right? <laughs> Patty, how are you? Yes, you know, in September, Patty and I are going to a, a reunion with her Roman Catholic grammar school buddies. She went to, she went to Roman Catholic school at St. Patrick's on Staten Island 
first grade through eighth grade. We're going to fly up there. We're going to stay on Staten Island. I'm going to see all the places Patty frequented. I'm going to meet her friends and I'm going to get stories that I'm bringing back. <laughs> so make your, that's happening in September, so make yourselves ready. Yeah. I'm not going to say how many years. <laughs> Ten. This is her tenth reunion of the eighth grade. Okay. <laughs> how many years, Gary? 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 <laughs> Jan, what are you going to do? What are you doing with him? So he's saying, "Look, I am your father. This is why I care." See, you have to hear these parts in order to hear well the rest of it because he speaks to them in a very direct way. Paul is not indifferent. These are matters of life and death. And he speaks to them directly. Richard Hayes uses a phrase in his commentary, prophetic confrontation. You know, it's like the prophets of old in Israel who would go around and sure we have our, our imagining of them and they got the long beards and they got the you know they got the sandwich boards you know the end is nigh or whatever it might be but they spoke the truth and it often resulted not in acceptance and riches you see but in isolation and poverty because people don't the world does not like to be prophetically confronted. The world does not like the truth to be spoken. I kind of feel like we live in a time when I feel, in, I feel like we're, we're, people are increasingly reluctant to, to say what they see, to just talk about things that they can see with their own eyes. And I don't think that's good. And I personally don't think it will last because it's, it's, it, I don't think it can endure. But he says, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So he's not talking about biological fathers. The same way Jesus wasn't talking about biological brothers and sisters. He says, who is my brother? Who is my sister? Who is my father? All of, it's when you come to faith in Christ, you come into a new family, the family of Christ. And for these Corinthian Christians, their senior pastor, their father in Christ is Paul. And he loves them, and he cares about them, and he's going to speak to them directly, trying to help them see where they have gone so wrong. So he says in verse 15, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Wow! Isn't that something? Isn't that something? It's not the only place Paul says it. Elsewhere he says, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Paul is a practical, for all his intellect, okay, sometimes intellectual people aren't practical. Paul is very practical, and he knows that we learn things from other people. We have role models in life. Sometimes we realize people are our role models. Sometimes we don't actually realize it, but they still are. I've, I've said this 
not for many years, but Charles Barkley once said, I'm not anybody's role model. And I thought to myself, well, Charles, you don't get to choose that, you see, right? You're not the decider of whether you're somebody's role model. Kids will look up to you. They will model themselves after you. Um, part, I've, I've been a dad of three sons. I don't think, you know, you can talk to your kids a lot. You can talk to them till their ears are bleeding. <laughs> and you might feel like you're not getting anywhere. But I personally believe that the most important part of being a good dad is being a role model, showing them what a good dad is, showing them what a good man is. That those lessons stick. And you want your teenagers, you want your kids to have healthy, good role models, right? Um, and, and Paul is willing to put himself out there as someone whom they can imitate as they strive to be more Christ-like. Wow. That's, it's bold, isn't it? Because we're talking about being more Christ-like. We're talking about living as Jesus taught us to live. And Paul says, go ahead, imitate me. He's very, he's confident not only in his call, he's confident that he understands how the Christians are to live and he's confident in his ability to do that. He says elsewhere that, you know, I, I am a super Jew. I, I, I was a super Pharisee. I, I did everything. I was better than anybody at keeping that stuff. And I think some of that same intensity and, and strength now he now brings to this. And you might say to me, well, isn't that a bit overblown? I mean, come on, Scott. But you see what happened. The early church believed it. They saw this in Paul. Otherwise, would we have all of his writings kept, copied, cherished by the early church, passed on? I don't think so. His, his, his life amongst these early Christians had to be a key part of why his writings were copied and passed on. If he had written on one thing, but had lived a totally different kind of life, do you think we'd have those writings today? Of course not. We wouldn't have those. It, um, there's, there's, oftentimes the best testimony about anything is about the life lived or what happens. It's a little bit like the resurrection of Jesus. What is the or the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. What is the best testimony to that? It isn't even anything that Paul wrote. It is the existence of Christianity. That is the best testament to the truth of the resurrection because for the life of me, I have never heard anyone explain to me how Christianity could exist unless it's true. Because there are a thousand reasons for Christianity to not exist this weird, strange, foreign, you know, set of beliefs from the first century A.D. No, it's be it exists because it's true. It's the greatest upset in human history that it's true. And it's true because the, res because the resurrection actually happened. And so Paul simply says, go ahead, imitate me. He's so 
I won't use the word desperate, but maybe it's the right word. He's de desperate for these, for these people to, to get it right. And so then he goes on in verse 17. He's a practical man. Is Paul in Corinth? No. He, he's planning to get back there. We think he does get back there. Seems that he does, but he, he's not there. So he says, therefore, well, therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, not his biological son, his son in Christ, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Now, Timothy is a man whom Jesus, whom Paul met on his first missionary journey and joined Paul and has been with Paul for some number of years yet, would be with Paul. Um, a few letters, a couple of letters in the New Testament are written from Paul to Timothy. Um, and Paul knows Timothy well enough to send him to make, to tell, ask Timothy to take the trouble of going to Corinth and helping them. Helping them understand what it means to imitate Paul and thereby imitating Christ. To help them lead this life, to answer questions, to be a role model for them. Right? For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love. <laughs> like, so I think there's probably a little hint because of the troubles between Paul and the Corinthians, you know, you need receive him well. I'll put it that way. Receive him well. This is my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. That word faithful is so enormous. Um, in the Old Testament, the word faithful um, is used 200 plus times to talk about God. God's faithfulness. And we are called to be faithful to God. We are called to be faithful to one another, to be true to our word, to put other people's interests ahead of our own, to be faithful to this community that we, that we are part of. To go on, Timothy will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. They have no curricula. They don't have any sacred scriptures other than the Hebrew scriptures, which I think Paul would tell them, you need to start immersing yourself in those and you will, you will learn an awful lot about all of this. But, you know, most of, these, most of this community, um, they are Gentiles, not, not Jews. There probably are some Jews, almost certainly are, but, um, the, but mainly Gentiles, just because there's so many Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world. And so Timothy is there to remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. It's a bold statement, but it's a, if you read all Paul's letters, it's certainly, it's not surprising that he would say that. So. Any th does it trigger any thoughts or questions? Is there any significance that he called Timothy his son instead of a brother? You're my sister in Christ. My son because I think he feels, he's, Paul sees himself as a senior pastor person. 
And so, like he said in the previous one, he is my father, right? So I think he feels about Timothy. I imagine there is some way that Timothy feels like what we might call a godson or something that somebody might have, that they're really close to. So, but it's still within this family of Christ, where there are brothers and sisters, and Paul has said, I'm your father, basically in Christ, I'm your senior pastor, he is my son. It's just, but the important thing is to focus on the familial relationship that isn't in blood, right? Isn't in DNA, but is in Christ. I don't know. I don't agree. And it I, I, might also reflect the difference in ages of the two. Most people, most people think Timothy's young, right? So there's that piece of it. But he says, I love him. He is faithful. I'm sending you, him to you so that you can see my way of life. Timothy doesn't really, shouldn't really need anything more than that. So maybe. Was there was a question here? So I'm getting asked, did the early Christians know about Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus? So what that question is really asking is, what was the content of Paul's preaching? Right? So I am willing to bet, because we see that here and there, like in Galatians, I'm willing to bet that that story was part of Paul's standard preaching, because one, it's his own, it, it's sort of the, 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 um, the endorsement of him as an apostle. Secondly, everybody loves a story. People then love stories, we love stories. So, you know, when I preach, I really, I really try to find the story just because it's, I think it's the way that people, you can step into stories. So I'm, I'm betting that that encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus that resulted in Paul putting his faith in Jesus as the Messiah of the Jews was something that was pretty much standard part of what he would preach about when he showed up somewhere in a new town. Okay? Anything else? Yes? Guardians are, yes, guardi typically the word guardians refers to slaves who educate the children in a household. That's what it is. It's not all the usage of that word, but that's principally the usage of the Greek word there is um, the, the oftentimes in households the children were educated by, uh, by a slave in the family. I think like Aristotle was as I recall. Um, growing up. Why? He says you might have 10,000 teachers, 10,000 people looking after you, but you don't have many fathers. In fact, you really only have one. And that's right. I am your father in Christ. See, it's that, it's that in Christ part that drives everything here. You could keep inserting the words in Christ through almost every part of what he writes. You know, yeah. 
Okay. So, then he says, well, in verse 18, some of you have become arrogant. That's sort of a base level problem. They elevate themselves, they elevate their rhetoric, they elevate their education, they elevate the fact that they're Greek probably. You know, they elevate all these things and, and it, they, don't, they, do, they don't grasp. And now he's gonna say, you're arrogant <laughs> and you think you can be because it's as if I were not coming to you. <laughs> when the cat's away, the mice will play. Mona? Okay, so, so the question and comment is about that the study builders are referring to this contentious relationship that Paul has with the Corinthians and some were undercutting him and saying that his ministry is worthless or whatever, he's unstable. And so they end up saying, oh, I'm with Apollos or I'm with so-and-so. And that sets the stage for what you see played out more directly in 2 Corinthians which is the difficulties that he has with the Corinthians. And what is the, what is the root of that? Is, is that Paul has come in preaching the good news, which undercuts almost everything they value as Greeks. Undercutting Plato, undercutting the value of rhetoric, undercutting all of that, right? That, that the world is not what it seems. You were, it's, it's so timely because we're all educated people here at St. Andrew, right? And we were brought up to see the world in a certain way and to think about certain ways the world works. And the gospel of Jesus Christ undercuts almost all of that. You know, I, I just flashed to a scene. This is from the movie Wall Street, right? The movie Wall Street, when Martin Sheen, the maintenance guy, the union guy, is saying to his son, Charlie Sheen? Is that who it was in Wall Street? Yes. You can't judge a man by the size of his wallet. Well, there's a lot of judging of people by the sizes of their wallets. Can you find that anywhere in the gospel? Oh my, 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 no. Can you judge anybody by the size of their home? Oh my, 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 no. There's lots of things that we think are important and significant in making <coughs> assessments of others that in the light of the gospel simply aren't. And so the Corinthians, of course, many of them are up, upset by Paul. I'm not surprised they find him unstable. I mean, look what, he, look what he's written to them in this letter. He's mocking them at times to try to get them to listen to him and to see this, the truth. He's, he's unloading this prophetic condemnation, confrontation, and sometimes condemnation on them. But it's done in love, right? I, he says, I don't do any of this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. 
but that doesn't mean they don't hear it as shaming, right? So he says, some of you have become, in verse 18, some of you has be have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, I will hear not only these arrogant people's rhetoric, that's a rhetoric's a better word than just talking, because rhetoric is such a valued skill um, in, in, in among the Greeks. But what power they have, right? They think they have lots of power, fed by, you know, Plato and Aristotle and their rhetoric and the rest of it. And then he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What, what power marks the kingdom of God? What power marks the kingdom of God? Whose power marks the kingdom of God? Christ's, in Christo, in Christ. The power of Christ, the power of Christ, the power of Christ. You know, it's, it's, they grew up and have not been, not left behind the Greco-Roman world and everything that it values. And now Paul has arrived in town talking about Jesus and talking about the good news and they don't hear it. As he said earlier in the letter, they've managed to find themselves stuck here. They're stuck here. They're just... And they aren't, even though Paul thinks, hopes, I don't know, that they have been reborn, they're not moving. They're not moving to the age to come. They're not living this, this new life that God has given them. They value the same things the world around them values. One of the greatest, in the past 50 years and longer, I can only, t I'm, I mean, I'm old, but not, not that old. So in the past 50 or 60 years, one of the great indictments of American Christianity is that people who do surveys, Gallup and the rest, can find very little difference between how, how those who are explicitly Christian live and those who are not. The values of those who are explicitly Christian and those who are not. And there needs to be a greater difference. And, you know, people much smarter than, than me, Stanley Harawas, Will Willimon, and others, their view of this is that because Christianity is no longer something that everybody is just like supposed to be, that you will find that arising again. That there's hope and strength as the Christian church only has real volunteers. And that there will be again more difference between the way that the larger world lives and the way that the Christians live. Certainly in this time, maybe over the course of the next weeks, we'll talk about more about the kind of 
society that these people are living in. It isn't like it isn't like West Plano in in 2022. It's a hard world. It's a vastly oversexualized world. It is a world in which women were second-class citizens on a par with slaves. It was a world nobody here would really want to go to go live in. Um, and the Christians were supposed to live apart from that world. Verse 20. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. And what do you prefer? The, right? So the, let's go back to 20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of rhetoric, which I know you learned a lot of, Paul says, but of power. What power? The power of God, the power of Christ. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? The rod of discipline, that's a standard old figure in the Greco-Roman world. You know, remember we used to have a saying? I never hear it anymore. Never, never. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Never do I hear that anymore in contemporary culture. My experience as a parent is if you are unwilling to put a swat on a butt now and then. Don't have to do it with a stick. You can do it with your hand, but you need, yeah. So anyway, same idea. What do you want? Paul is determined, determined to help these people find their way to Christ. And now this last verse of chapter, remember there aren't, there aren't chapter divisions, right? Not really. There's no real chapter divisions. This is the letter. There's no verse there's no chapter divisions, no verse divisions. I'll, I'll try to explain what the page looked like. The page that this is all written on is a block of Greek characters. Line at a, a nice clean rectangle, line after line after line after line, no punctuation, no capitals, no paragraphs, no sections, no headings. It's a miracle anybody could read anything then, honestly. It's why oftentimes there would be people who would be skilled in that that would read a letter like this to everybody else. And they were written the way they were because it was costly to have something written down. The, the papyrus, the material they wrote on was costly. It was all costly. I remember a long time ago I read that it was that to put writing um, on an eight and a half piece of papyrus was about a day's wages. Week, week's wages, week's wages. Costly. Um, it's why they use professional scribes to do this. Because it was, it was costly. So, yeah. All right, so now we're going to embark. Now we're going to embark. I'm just getting, I'm, I'm trying to get the sound right so it sounds good to me. I hope it is for you, really, I do, I do. But I'm doing it for me. 
<laughs> so now we're going to come to the first problem. He's got a long list of problems. The first time I taught 1 Corinthians, I subtitled the class, um, You Think You've Got Problems, because they have problems. So before we launch, any, any question before we launch into the first problem? That is certainly driving the strength of what Paul has been saying for a few verses now. Okay, so let's just, let's, we're going to bridge the chapters here. So we're going to read right through them. He says, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with, having sex with, his father's wife, as Paul's head is spinning on his shoulders. Now, I have here a paragraph written by Cicero, who is Cicero is one of the great orators and leaders of ancient Rome at this time. Cicero wrote this. He said, and so mother-in-law marries son-in-law with no one to bless it, no one to sanction the union, and amid naught but general foreboding. Oh, to think of the woman's sin. Unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, save for this single instance. We don't know anything about the instance, but it's clear that for Cicero at least, this is beyond the pale. To think of her wicked passion, unbridled, untamed. To think that she did not quail, if not before the vengeance of heaven, that is the power of the gods, or the scandal among men, among people, at least before the night itself with the wedding torches, the threshold of the bridal chamber, her daughter's bridal bed. She could have stopped somewhere. <laughs> or even the walls themselves, which had witnessed that other union. The madness of passion broke through and laid low every obstacle. Lust triumphed over modesty, wantonness over scruple, madness over sense. And now it's happened in the Christian community. This house church, a man is sleeping with having sex with his father's wife. Now this is not his mother. Okay. Just just so you are wondering. There's no there's, there's really no reason to think it's his own mother, but it's his father's latest wife. So, let me... Well, not really. Not really. No. No, probably not. But, but mom might have passed away and this is dad's new squeeze. Anyway. <laughs> oh, Patty's shaking her head. Scott, Scott, stop, stop. Okay, so in the, this, this will surprise you, I think, that in the Greco-Roman world, a man could have sex with anybody he wanted to with no social restrictions, no condemnation, nothing, so long as the person wasn't the wife of another man. Otherwise, anything goes. Anything goes. I guess. Anything goes. Right? And so... You know, of course, you can imagine that that meant that a lot of um, girls and young women who were slaves, sometimes boys and young men, particularly who were slaves, would be pulled into that. But this, having sex with your father's wife, 
Paul's head is spinning off. And then he says, a man is sleeping with his father, wife, and you are proud. As if to say, oh my gosh, you people, oh, you're thinking to yourselves, oh, I'm free in Christ, baby. I am free in Christ. Anything goes. And Paul's head is spinning around like this. You know, he was often, often, um, condemned by fellow Jews for telling people that, well, because of, of, of Christ's sacrificial death and our freedom in Christ, that that would mean that anything goes. I'm free in Jesus, let's go back to the party. And Paul would constantly have to fight that because, of course, that's not so. Freedom, our freedom in Christ is not a freedom from anything. It's a freedom for something. What are you going to use that freedom for? And in this case, this man and the father's wife, they have lost their minds. It, it's not clear that the father's wife is even part of the house church. Probably not. But the man is, and the people in the community are proud. They, they don't care. They don't care. Oh, well. Live and let live. Right? Judge not lest you be judged. That is like the clarion call of our day. Judge not, lest you be judged. But that famous statement by Jesus is not a call to, to do never have, to never exercise wisdom, assessment, judgment about things or people. It's a call against self-righteous hypocrisy. You know, don't look for the splinter in your brother's eye until you pulled the log out of your own. Look at, go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Eighteen fifteen. What's a good year? Okay, Matthew. I was not alive then, no. Matthew eighteen fifteen. This is this will be Jesus speaking himself. Okay, so the topic generally is dealing with sin in the church, amongst the believers, in the house churches, in the community of disciples. Verse fifteen of Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Very good advice. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, then take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You know, Jesus said a lot of things that are skipped, <laughs> skipped over, including things like this. Um, These house churches are fragile. And 
this Jesus's way of life matters. And the community in Corinth has lost all grip of that. So little wonder that they see Paul as unstable or whatever else because he's calling them on it. And he will call them some more as these problems proceed. This is not the last one, okay? Verse 2, he says, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? It's hard for us to conceive of such a thing because history tells us that Christians do a terrible job of exercising judgment about these things. But um, it doesn't mean that we can be indifferent. I'm, I'm thinking of Philip. How many of you ever read a book by Philip Yancey? Philip Yancey is always worth reading. Any of his books. Just pick one up. They're all worth reading. They're all... He was a former journalist, so they're all well-written. He's, and he's a very thoughtful guy. So he, he wrote once that he was called by a friend to go to breakfast. And this friend revealed to Philip Yancey at breakfast that this friend had been saying another woman and that he was going to leave his wife and he basically wanted Philip Yancey's endorsement for it you know judge not lest ye be judged but Philip Yancey said no I know you I know your wife I know the circumstances if you're no no and the man went away I don't know what the outcome was but 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 Philip said no he wasn't going to to endorse this. Now I say this of course as somebody who's been divorced and after a lot of pain and sad stories that I don't like sharing, not even remembering, but you know, sin matters. Sin matters. Paul writes in verse 3, for my part even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. Now that is something I think Paul takes really very literally. The fellowship of Christians is, um, it's, we're called to this by the Holy Spirit. And I think for Paul, who is, he has this whole kind of mystical side to himself. He talks about ta being taken up to a third heaven, whatever that means. He speaks in tongues by himself and quiet as a prayer language. He, there's this mystical side to Paul and I think he's, he's, his understanding of himself and the Christian community is that he is with them in spirit. Not just in a thinking way but in some deep mysterious metaphysical way. For my part, he says in verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, 
and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Wow. Wow. Okay, so Paul says, I am with you in spirit. When I am with you in spirit, I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, that this man needs to be expelled from the community. For and, and, and why is that? Is it for the good of the community? What does the reason say? It's going to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that he may be saved. This is Paul's rescue project for the guy. Paul's rescue project to the guy is to have him leave this community. Now, hand it over to Satan, what does that mean? It probably means just, 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 just leave. Just go back out into this world, this age, which is the age of Satan, okay? And you, you just, you just, you're just not in the right place. So, so we're, we're going to ask you to leave. For the destruction of the flesh, what's that about? The flesh is a way that Paul will talk about our sinful selves, our sinful nature. Sarks, I think it is in the Greek, our sinful nature. So he's basically saying, ask this man, tell this man he needs to leave. But it's for his own sake. That's the first thing to grasp is that he isn't even doing it because he says, oh, because the church is too fragile or something. No. It's so that if you ask him to leave, he will, he will come to his senses. He will yet be saved. He will yet be saved. So turn to 2 Corinthians. Put a little marker there. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Okay. Chapter 2, per, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. We don't know the reference of the personal pronoun. I like to think, many commentators on this like to think it's the guy referred to in the first letter. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Right? Um, another reason I wrote to you was that if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. So, most people see that as 
Paul saying to the Corinthians, take somebody back in. And I, for one, like to imagine that it is the fellow from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who did. <laughs> Remember the old novel, the John Le Carre novel, the spy who came in from the cold? Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> who did, who was thrown out into the cold, slapped back into sense, and is now being brought back in from the cold. I know we don't think about the, at least, you know, we Methodists don't think about it this way. I don't know enough history of Methodism to know if there were ever occasions in Methodist churches where they strongly suggested to someone that they might be better off elsewhere. I can think of a few Methodists in my life I might have said that to, but, <laughs> right? But, yes? Oh, good. An online question. Is that so? The question is: This is this like what the Amish do when they shun people? Yes, um, I think it probably is. It is. I think the I believe. I don't know for a fact. I believe the Quakers do something similar. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, excommunicates. Just because you've been excommunicated doesn't mean you can't be recommunicated. But it is this idea that people can actually live lives or do things which place them outside outside the community of believers. And of course for Paul it isn't like he isn't telling them to pick somebody at random and go shove them out the door. He's saying the man has in essence done this himself. And y'all are so proud. You don't even get it. You don't even get it, the depth of sin here. Um, in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, sleeping with your father's wife is condemned, 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 condemned. You know, and, and it's, it's not surprising to me that this is the lead-off problem that he deals with amongst this whole raft of problems that he's going to have to talk about in the course of this, this letter because it's just so blatant and maybe it's why, though, though honestly, like he says, this is also verboten for the pagans, but it is verboten, verboten, forbidden, forbidden for, for the Jews. And if these Gentile Christians begin to learn more of the Hebrew scrolls, and they will see that, that there as well. So, thoughts, questions? Rich? Yes, surely the Methodist Church has a way for at least the clergy to be booted out or demoted. Well, interesting, Rich would raise that. We do have, in, does the Methodist, I'm going to phrase it as a question, does the Methodist Church have a way to, to discipline clergy? To discipline bishops, yes. What the big controversy in the Methodist Church over the last ten or fifteen years is that increasingly the bishops refuse to discipline 
bishops and clergy who were blatantly disobedient to the Book of Discipline. So, and so I'm sure there are means in the Methodist Church to, you know, suggest, I imagine for, for lay people it would just be a quiet suggestion that maybe you'd be better off elsewhere. See, see, Rich is bringing up that fella from downtown, First Dallas. What was his name? Walker Rayleigh. Oh, yes. So really, killing your wife is something that puts you outside the pale. <laughs> so we may not know really how to make a list of what puts us outside the pale. Maybe we'll start with killing your wife, maybe add to it sleeping with your father's wife, and we can move on from there and pick the things that we would be comfortable going up to someone and saying, you know, tug on your sleeve, maybe this isn't the right place. So, but notice, it is, Paul, Paul why is Paul doing it? Why? It's for the benefit of the man. It's so that he may be saved. That's the key. Whether it's Walker Rayleigh or anybody else, the, the, the purpose of the discipline is to, is to help people see the error of their way so that they can repent and embrace anew the way of God. That's the thing. That's the thing. And so what, you know, I've thought a lot about this as I work through these passages every week, anticipating that some of them will be harder to um, talk about than others, is what does this mean? Well, for me, it, it means I need to be willing, like Philip Yancey, if I have a friend, let's just keep it simple, I have a friend who is really screwing up I need to be strong enough to sit down and tell them. That, that's part of what Christian friendship, friendship, friendship should be. Um, John Wesley, how did Methodism start? Methodism started at Oxford University when John Wesley and his brother Charles founded these holy clubs. And they were groups of, let's say, 12 to 15 people who would come together and they would hold each other accountable, really, truly. Where did I see you at 3 a.m., John Wesley? Don't you know nothing good happens after midnight, right? So, and they would hold each other accountable. And so the Methodist tradition, there is this sense of, of mutual accountability and really trying to help one another lead the lives that we have called us, that God has called us to lead. Why do we want to lead lives that God has called us to lead? Because that's what we were made for. Every, you, you'll hear people say all the time, oh, I just want to do what makes me happy. Damn it, people don't know what makes them happy. Happiness cannot be a goal in life. Happiness is, is an outcome of the right goals. It's not, a, it, it, it's not a goal. Talk to happiness experts. You know there are these things. There are. You laugh, but there are happiness experts. 
Um, the, the recent issue of the Atlantic Magazine, of all places, had a whole cover story devoted to, to, to um, one professor of happiness, okay? So, so it sounds silly, but hey, okay. So happiness can't be a goal. It's an outcome of reaching the right sorts of goals. You see the difference? It's an outcome from reaching the right sorts of goals. And then you, ah, that makes me happy. But if you just start wandering around thinking, well, this is going to make me happy, and that's going to make me happy, and this is going to, it's all a matter of what circumstances are, and maybe what you had for dinner, and, you know, what you saw else somewhere. So, yes. So Kathy's saying we need to talk of joy rather than happiness, and that's very deeply true. In Scripture, you're going to find a lot about joy. You're not going to find too much about happiness because happiness is grounded in particular circumstances, and those change in our lives fast sometimes, right? But joy is deep-seated, and the source of our joy is whom? It's Christ. And so our, this deep-seated understanding of who we are and this community that we are embedded in and the fact that we are loved by God and that even death is not our end, all that feeds, should feed a sense of abiding joy that gets us, helps us get through the tough times in life. So, okay, just maybe one more paragraph. Let's just read through one more paragraph today. He says at 107, he says to the Corinthians, you're boasting, which he's been talking about all along, right? I don't have to, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little, little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? It just, ta just takes, this is Jesus too, it just takes a little bit to ruin the whole batch. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. <laughs> unleavened. Why unleavened batch? What's that tied to? What's unleavened bread? What's the significance of unleavened bread in our traditions? The Passover, the Exodus, the new Exodus. Exactly. Always, always look for those little connections in Paul because he is what? He is a Jewish Pharisee. <laughs> it's just wired into him. So that you may be a new unleavened batch, just as you really are. That's an encouraging word to them. You really are. You really are God's people. But dang it, you're not acting like it. So, imitate me. I'm setting Timothy. Imitate him. Because you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's Jesus who has done that work, not us. It's Jesus who has done that work. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, the Passover festival, the new exodus, as it were. Exodus, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death. Let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice, 
and wickedness. Malice and wickedness is what characterizes this age. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, which characterizes the age to come, the kingdom of God. That's what he means. That's what he's talking about. He's calling them to live the life that they were reborn into. And it, ain't, it isn't easy. It isn't easy. And they are getting a lot wrong. And he, he loves them a lot. They matter so much to him. There's not a whiff of indifference in these, in these letters from Paul. Let's just read on for a minute. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And maybe next week we'll talk, I'll just give you a sense of the world that these Christians are trying to make their way through. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, if you're going to hang out with them, you'd have to leave this world, this world of this community of Christians, this world of the age to come, this world that is the kingdom of God. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. You know, for Paul, Paul has no way to judge, evaluate, understand the state of anybody's heart. All he can do is look at how they live. And I, for one, think a constant New Testament message is that when you come to faith in Christ, you will have something to show for it. Maybe if you were just kind of mean and nasty before, you will at least be less so, less mean and nasty. But you will have to have something to show for it. Otherwise, the whole thing's a lie, right? The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in us, it, it, it must bear fruit. Or what? Are we kidding one another? Is it just a joke? Is it just, are we really just Kiwanis or the JCs or a, a club of like-minded people? No, it's true. Jesus was raised. The Holy Spirit arrived on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And, and we have to strive to do our part, because it, it is a joint effort, to do our part to bear the fruit of the Spirit in kindness and compassion and gentleness and justice and mercy and the rest. So we'll pick up there or thereabouts next week. That's quite a doozy of a first problem, isn't it? That he has to deal with. My, oh my. Patty, one last thing. When we have time. Very, very quickly. Um, this, the people that he is telling them not to be with are the very same people that Jesus went to. And Tax collectors, the, all the stuff, the prostitutes, these are the people Jesus hung around with. Right. And yeah. he used the, the phrase, you know, I didn't come to heal the healthy, I came to heal the sick. Is he just 
frightened that they are so new in Christ that they will stumble themselves where he wouldn't have stumbled? Okay, that's such a good question, Patty. So Patty's question for those of you online is about the fact that Jesus went, and if you read the list there that I just read, Jesus hung out with these people and he went to these people. And here Paul is saying, I, 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 you better be careful. You just, you just don't need to be going out there and doing that. So why would he do that? First of all, it is the weakness of the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? We're not Jesus, right? We don't, we don't save souls. Um, if, if people go out, they need to go out into the world as Christians with strength and understanding. Um, and I'm, I, I, as Paul does, Paul goes from place to place in the pagan world, right? And I think that Paul thinks that these people are not ready for that, right? He has to give them milk, not meat. So they're not Jesus. He, um, so he says to them, it's bold of him to even say, imitate me in the way that we are to live. And I, I think that um, if you look at the history of Christianity, what happens is, of course, they do, of course, begin to go outward. But I just think for these people, he is nervous, as worried as Dickens about, about them and is just counseling them to to get stronger first. It's like sort of like a sick person who wants to get up out of the bed. Well, you don't want to get up too soon. You got to you got to build your strength up and then you can do that. I don't know. Good good question. Yes. I think I think I'm asked if uh, if Paul thinks these congregation are sinners too, well, Paul would say we all are himself, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. I just think he can't get over he he just can't comprehend that this guy in the house church is having sex with his father's wife, and nobody even cares that it's just it's just the blatant shock of it all that I think makes Paul's head spin around on his shoulders and it's the first problem that he deals with because it's it's so indicative of the deeper problems in the in the community because they don't care they don't see it they're proud of it that's that's the problem in the community you see Nobody's sitting down with them. I say, man, you need to stop this, dude. They're proud of it. Because why are they proud of it? They're free in Christ, baby. I can do whatever I want. <sighs> That's not the way. It's not the way. So anyway, we will have the opportunity to talk more about this week. I think we will spend a little time talking about the world that these people are living in because I think it will make the letter um, easier to, to, to understand because it is not... Plano of 2022 that they are living in. Not by, not by a stretch, not by a long way. It's a long way from Plano of 2022. So, all right. Uh, one, sorry, online, quick prayer. Would you pray for Connie Elford today? She's suffering very bad with bronchitis. 
Okay, we want to pray for Connie Elder today. He was suffering very badly for bronchitis. And I know, as Paul writes about in his letters, that we all carry prayers in our hearts. And these are prayers that the Holy Spirit lifts up for us. And I, for one, am eternally grateful for that. Just, just, it's, and prayer binds us together, right? Prayer is real. Prayer is genuine. Prayer changes things. Don't ever, don't ever think otherwise or you strip prayer of its meaning and power. And as Dallas Willard said, said, you know, if you think prayer can't change anything, it ends up becoming an, an empty ritual. And why would God listen to that? And I thought that was pretty profound. So would you pray with, with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, we do lift up Connie, we lift up all the other people on our hearts who are in particular need of your healing and your aid. We are thankful to come together like this and talk about this often challenging letter from, from Paul. Help us to hear him well. Help us to figure out how to take what he writes and, and, and bring it to our to our own world and how what is he what would he be saying to us today 2000 years later it's not easy to do that but we pray that your holy spirit would help us with that because we do desire to become ever truer disciples of Jesus or we wouldn't be here we wouldn't be here and so just be with us in the coming days all this we pray in Jesus' name amen, amen.